welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. Hear the Word of God this morning. We're going to be learning from a parable that Jesus taught in the final week of his life. Luke chapter 20, I'll be reading from verses, verse 9 through 18. Let's hear the Word of God. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out for tenants to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also, they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is God's time-spanning word. May we understand his plan and the greatness of his son through it. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. I'm sure that some of you can think back to uh, all the people that God sent your way before you met Christ who were part of how you saw Christ and came to Jesus. Even if you came to Christ as a young person, I'm sure that there were one or more people. Some of them might be in this room today who lived a Christian life before you, who shared the gospel with you in a certain setting, maybe more than once. And when you were ready, they helped you step over into faith in Jesus. Or maybe you were older and maybe resisted the gospel And God needed to send many prophetic voices into your life. He needed to do that with me. And I can think back to the many faces and the many dear people who uh, patiently God used in my life to lead me to faith. So you can think back over the few or the many, and every one of them them were needed in that process of revealing Jesus to you. That's how God works. Now, after salvation, that didn't stop. God has gifted everyone in the body of Christ with a spiritual gift and a level of maturity to pour into others in the body of Christ. So now after you're, you're coming to faith, 
Think back over your Christian life, and I'm sure that there are all kinds of names and faces that come into your memory of believers that helped you grow. Believers that encouraged you through dark spots in your early Christian life. Teachers, pastors, counselors, disciplers, small group leaders, teachers, everyday Christians that sat with you across a cup of coffee during a time in your life when you battled to stay with Jesus. And think back over all those people and all those faces who helped to restore you and build you and keep you at the faith. All of those are what I would call part of the mercies of God. That's how God brought you to Christ. That's how God sustains you in Christ. Now, have you ever also thought about where you would be eternally if they hadn't been sent and you hadn't responded? You know where you'd be. You'd be heading to an eternity without Christ. Or even think about your relationship with God. What would it be like if you hadn't had the people who walked into your life after salvation and led you to deeper maturity? You probably experienced a lot less reward than you're going to have in heaven because they helped you find your ministry and stay at your walk. So all of these individuals are representatives of what I would say are the mercies of God over your life. You got to thank God for them. But also, what you would have faced if you hadn't responded are part of what I would call the consequences that God must bring to your life. So the whole story of spiritual experience can be wrapped up in those two words. God's mercies of bringing the gospel to you through people and building your Christian life through others. And the consequences that were in play if they hadn't come or you hadn't responded. So mercy and consequences. That's a big way of looking at your whole Christian experience. Now, I want you to keep the words mercy and consequence in your mind because this is a parable about mercy and consequences. It's a story about how God worked in many merciful ways through many servants that he sent to a rebellious people seeking to bring them by mercy into the knowledge of who he was and the consequences that came when they rejected those messengers of mercy. That's what the parable is all about, mercy and consequences. Now, it starts with Israel, and most of what we'll study today involved Israel at the time of Jesus. But there's a part of this parable that, like I said in my early words, transcends and moves all through spiritual time, really. Through the history of Israel, through the history of of the life of the planet from their, their time to our time and into eternity. So this has a word not just about old Israel, but about your life and about spiritual life today and about mercy and consequences for you. You can learn some lessons about how to respond to God's mercy and how to face consequences by learning this parable. So we're going to go into it. I'm going to do two things. Shouldn't be a surprise. First of all, we're going to take a look at an understanding of what the parable says, an understanding of what the parable says. And then secondly, at the very end, it's going to be a long exposition today. At the very end, I'm going to give you three ideas about how, how, how we can be relating this parable to our lives today. 
So first of all, let's take a look at understanding what the parable says. I should probably start by answering a little question that might be in your mind as somebody that's looking at your Bible, and that is, what's a parable? What is a parable? Well, it's a story that tells a truth. That's all it is. It's a story with design characters or symbols that represent others or events. It's, it's a story that tells a deep truth, a clear truth, and it tells it in a way that the mind has hooks that it'll stick upon. Jesus was the master of parables, of course, God Almighty, the perfect teacher. He, he taught 40 different parables that we have recorded in the four Gospels, and many, many more, John tells us, that couldn't have been recorded in all the books of the world. So Jesus was a parable teller, the master of it all. And this parable is one of only three that's repeated in every one of the Gospels. So it must have had some great importance, this story about mercy and consequences. So a parable is a story that tells a truth. He's telling this story to tell very powerful truths about <clears throat> Israel, about spiritual life, about the gospel, about who he was, and about how to respond to him. What's the setting? Well, I've already told you as we've gone back into the Gospel of Luke uh, that uh, when we start again at chapter 20, some things have happened. Chapter 19 through the end of Luke cover the last week of Christ's life. We know it in the, we know it in the church as Passion Week. Some things had already happened in chapter 19 of Luke. Jesus had arrived in the triumphal entry, riding on the back of a donkey to fulfill prophecy. The people had all joyously welcomed him, thinking he was the Messiah who would deliver Israel politically from all their suffering. They really didn't understand that Messiah, first of all, had to go to a cross outside Jerusalem. But the triumphal entry had occurred a couple of days before. And then Jesus had come into Jerusalem. He saw all the corruption that was going on in the, in the courts of the temple. And as the builder of the temple and the one who had the rights to that, he cleared all that stuff out a day or two before. When he did that, he showed that he was God, that it was his house, and it needed to be a house of prayer. But he also angered all the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders in Israel when he did this. And so if you look at your Bibles, those two events had occurred and the people were hanging on his words as he taught every day from cleansing the temple. He came back the next day and through the, the, the middle days of the week, he was simply teaching and preaching, walking the temple area. Now, if you look at not Luke 19, verse 47, it says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. So triumphal entry on one day, the next day he came back and cleansed the temple, created this uproar, angered all the leaders, amazed all the people. Now we're on the third day, apparently, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday of that week. We don't know for sure. And Jesus had begun to just walk and talk, teaching daily in the temple. Verse 47. Now the people were hanging on his words, Luke 19, 48. But the leaders wanted to hang the man preaching the words. And we see that in verse 47. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. 
Now, last week, we saw the first way that they tried to do that that week, and that was to catch him on a technicality about who had ordained him to preach, who gave him authority. And we saw last week in Luke 20, verses 1 to 8, that Jesus was his own authority. He had been introduced with all the prophecies and credentials of the Messiah. John the Baptist, who'd been prophesied by the Old Testament, had proven Jesus was the Messiah. So Jesus had all the authority he needed. The scribes and the Pharisees rejected that, but he caught them in their own words, and they were defeated in front of the people. That had happened. Now, perhaps in the same set of conversations, but certainly certainly shortly thereafter, now we go from verse 8, where Jesus had just, you know, made these guys a mockery, to verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. Now we're going to go into the parable. And key to understanding what the parable teaches is usually understanding who the characters are that form the story. And that's true here. Now, there are basically six characters to be identified, if you will. The Bible says there was a man, verse 9, who planted a vineyard, who is the owner of the vineyard. Well, this is a representation of God Almighty, God the Father. The vineyard is a representation of Israel. We're going to kind of expand that for you. But it was a common understanding in the Old Testament that God called the nation of Israel that he had formed his vineyard. Who were the tenant farmers in verse 10, where, where he, he gave the vineyard into the care of tenant farmers who were supposed to raise a crop and take care of the vineyard? Those were the religious leaders whom he had been confronting all week long, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the members of the Sanhedrin. They were charged with leading Israel, feeding Israel spiritually, and creating fruit that glorified God in the lives of the people of Israel. So the owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard itself is the nation of Israel. And the tenant farmers are the religious leaders of Israel. Now there's two more. There's some servants that the parable says that the owner sent in his name to gather fruit get his share of the crops that the tenant farmers were supposed to produce, and they were shamefully treated. Who were these? They were every one of the Old Testament prophets who had been sent since God founded Israel, built the vineyard all the way through John the Baptist, who had just arrived earlier. And we'll see that without, almost without exception, they were all shamefully treated. Finally, who is the beloved son in the story? Do you have a guess? It's the Lord Jesus. And you can see how marvelous this story becomes. And that's where it begins to vault time. And Jesus sweeps all the way through the Old Testament record of the rebellion right to that moment on the stones in the temple courtyard. And he brings it to him. Owner of the vineyard's God. The vineyard represents the nation of Israel. The tenant farmers, the religious leaders of Israel. The servants of the owner that were sent to get the fruit and were shamefully treated. The prophets of Israel. And the son, the beloved son who comes is Jesus Christ, God's beloved son. So now you have all the moving parts, see. Now, I've broken this out. And there are six parts to the story. And each of them carries a truth. 
And uh, you're going to see them on the screen behind me, Lord willing, here. So we're going to walk through them, and I'm just going to give you each part of the story in a sentence and amplify the truth. First of all, this parable teaches, number one, that Israel was a special nation planted by God to produce spiritual fruit. That's the obvious beginning of it. Verse 9, and he began to tell the people this parable, this story that shows the truth, a man planted a vineyard. Now the man is, of course, God, the creator. God authored the nation of Israel. Israel is the only nation and the only people group in the history of mankind that was authored and formed by God himself. All other nations formed themselves, came about as accidents of history or movements of language. God formed Israel, called Abram out of out of the Chaldees and said, out of you, I'm going to make a great nation. Who was that? Well, it was the nation and the people of Israel. Now, the Bible says here that they are the vineyard and God planted the vineyard. That's Israel. Now, his listeners standing there, remember, they're in the outer courtyard. It's called the court of the Gentiles, but it was a massive place, 10 football fields, you know, in size. And then it surrounded the great temple of Herod in Jerusalem. So you're standing out in the the big area where Jesus taught, but you could look eastward and, yeah, I believe eastward, and you would see the temple. The temple was a magnificent, magnificent building, had three parts to it, and it it rose up into the sky, beautiful white marble. But right on the face of the building where you couldn't miss it, surrounding the great entry doors, was a sculpture of a vineyard. This is fascinating. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this, describes it this way. The vineyard or Israel connection was something that every Jew understood about how God viewed Israel. It was so much a part of their national consciousness that the very temple in which Jesus was standing had a richly carved grapevine about 120 feet high. Imagine that, the face of that building. It was set so that it caught the rays of the sun through the majority of the day. And so the sun would hit this And it was sculpted around the door that led from the porch to the holy place of the temple. And it was made out of gold. Can you imagine the image? The branches and the leaves were all sculpted and covered in gold. The sun hitting that thing. Every day as the Jews stood there walking toward their temple, they saw this this image of Israel as the vine of God, the vineyard of God. Now, there were grapes that were were onto the side of that great sculpture, and they were not gold. They were actually jewels. And some of the wealthier Jews in that time, the Pharisees among them, would at times bring special offerings into the temple, and they would buy a large jewel, and it would be placed into the cluster of jewels on the face of the temple as their way of showing their devotion to God. And so over time, the clusters of jewels of all kinds of colors would just grow and the sun would hit that. And the pride of Israel looked at the the beauty of that and said, that's us. We are the vineyard of God. So Jesus is standing here and he very well could have turned with these leaders and he could have pointed right up to the face of the temple and said, a man planted a vineyard. 
Israel was represented by all this. They couldn't miss it. They all knew it. Now, Israel was expected to do one great thing. They were expected to bear spiritual fruit. That's what you plant a vineyard for. You don't plant it to look at it. They're not that compelling to look at even when they're, in, they're bearing fruit. What you plant the vineyard for is to harvest fruit for yourself, right? And God wanted that. In the Old Testament, which was read in our hearing this morning by David, there's a verse that describes what God wanted. He wanted two things. He wanted them to become like him, and he wanted them to share him with the world, with the nations. Micah 6, 8, for what does the Lord, he told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? What's the fruit he wants out of your life, Israel? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. They knew what God wanted them to do. Reflect him in their character as the word of God and the prophets taught them. And then share the news of the God of Israel, the only God, with the nations around them. And of course, we know the history of Israel. They pretty much did exactly the opposite. They rarely bore consistent fruit. They mostly lived in their flesh and their defiance against God. And instead of sharing the, the, the God of Israel with the nations and calling them the righteousness, what did the Jews most of the time do? They mingled with the nations, took all their sinful practices, and poured it into the life of Israel. They were chronic failures at all this. But that's what God wanted. And God planted Israel with the hope that they would respond to his mercies and bear fruit. Look at it, the hopefulness here. A man planted a vineyard, and he let it out to the tenants. Who were the tenants? Well, I've already told you. They were the spiritual leaders of Israel. From the, the, the very early days of Israel and the days of the judges through the kings of Israel, and all the spiritual leaders and the priests that were ordained in the temples in the days of old in Israel, all those that had the knowledge of God's scriptures and all those that were priests and teachers in Israel, they were supposed to teach the people how to live justly, justly and honor God, and they were supposed to cultivate fruit. God wanted that. He went into another country, though, for a long while. What's that represent? The words a long while there right in your Bible represent the entire Old Testament history. A couple thousand years of time. From the time that God called Abram out of the Chaldees and said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And Israel was born as a nation. All, when he says he went away for a long time, Jesus is covering everything from the day Abram started to the day that they were standing there. All of Old Testament history. Now, all of their minds also probably went to another verse in Scripture, and it's Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus was talking about something that Isaiah the great prophet had described about Israel. You need to know this because it helps you from your Old Testament understand this New Testament parable. Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah was talking about Israel, and he is, he is talking about how God looked at her. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Isaiah the prophet is looking at God the Father saying, oh God, I know that, that the vineyard Israel was the desire of your heart. 
My beloved, my God, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. This is Isaiah 5.1. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, meaning he, he took all the stones out. He made the land as perfect as it could be. He irrigated it. He set a watch around it to keep it safe from enemies. And he built a wine vat because he believed that they were going to yield fruit. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but... It yielded wild grapes. The Hebrew word is sour grapes. Useless. You spit them out of your mouth. There's the whole Old Testament. Literally in two verses. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. This is now God talking. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes, sour grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Here's how your Bible explains itself. What's the vineyard in the parable of Jesus? The house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This, par- this prophecy of Isaiah had two applications. One was he was using it to tell the people in Israel at that time in the year 586 B.C. that they had sinned so greatly that God was going to send them into captivity, the Babylonian captivity. He was going to send a foreign army to overrun Israel and to chasten them. But also... Centuries later, after Israel had come back to the land, even though they were under Roman domination, the nation still existed. He, it's also a prophecy to say that Israel hadn't learned anything and they were still unfruitful in the time of Jesus. More on that later. So all their minds went to it. But here they were standing in the courtyard and most of them, particularly the leaders, didn't understand that they were not bearing fruit. They were into religious activity and political victory, and they looked at the front of that temple, and they thought, we're a great nation. God is very pleased with us. Look at the house we built for him. Look at the beautiful vine we even put that shows how wonderful we are. And Jesus was looking at that and saying, you missed it all. He's not looking for a building. He's looking at your hearts. Boy, I tell you what, there's a transference to the church of America today. Building our buildings, building our, our, our strategies, building all of our achievements, running our numbers, impressing people with our activities, and all of this or that, and yet God still looks on the heart. How many hearts in the American church are contrite and humble and seeking Him more than living in pride, religious strength? That's just a little bonus. You think about that. So that's the first truth the parable teaches. Secondly, go back to Luke 19 now from Isaiah 5, by the way. The second thing in the story is many faithful prophets were sent to call back their hearts. Now we go into the narrative. Verse 10, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants. Who were the servants? They were the Old Testament prophets. And he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. 
He wanted them to, to reflect his character, and he wanted to know that they were sharing his name with the nations. And he sent prophet after prophet to them to, to, to teach them the word of God and to call them into the growth that he wanted and to bear the fruit that they wanted. And instead of listening to the prophets, they slew the prophets. They rejected the prophets. This is all the way from the very first Old Testament prophet by the name of Samuel, right after the time of the judges. He preached and they re rejected all the way through the great prophets like Isaiah, whom we just read, and weeping Jeremiah, who, who, who lost all of the impact of his preaching. And God said, by the way, you're going to preach to these people for 30 years and their foreheads are going to be like flint. I'll tell you, what, I've spoken to some audiences like that. <laughs> Poor Jeremiah had a church like that for 30 years. That's what Israel was like. So from Samuel, the first prophet, through Isaiah, the great prophet, all the way to Zechariah and Malachi, the last prophets in the Old Testament, Israel didn't listen. In fact, they didn't even fully listen to the last Old Testament prophet, who, in my opinion, was John the Baptist. So you see all this. He sent them leaders to turn their hearts, to move them to to trust in, in the Lord and begin to repent of their sin, to turn to God, to cry out to him, to walk with him. All the prophets called them to do that. And uh, over 2,000 plus years of history, most of the prophets were resisted. So here's the third one. The parable teaches, thirdly, that Israel constantly rejected and mistreated all of God's prophets. God sent prophets. Notice here in the parable, he sent more than one. He sent one after the other after the other. And what did they do? They beat them and treated them shamefully, verse 11. Beat in the, in the Greek language that this is, was inspired in by the Holy Spirit is a full body beatdown. It's, it's just a full body beatdown. It's what you see in a gangster movie or unfortunately on the streets of Chicago today. Treated shamefully. Traumatizes the Greek word when it says they, they treated them shamefully in verse 11. They, they, they persecuted the prophets. They hated the prophets. They tormented the prophets. They persecuted and caused them to suffer. They constantly rejected and mistreated all of God's prophets. And when you think about it, the Old Testament history bears that out. Many of the prophets were opposed, driven out. Many were beaten. Some were killed. Many were stoned. It just goes all the way through. In fact, uh, history tells us that Israel, according to the historical tradition, took that great prophet Isaiah, the greatest of the prophets, in my opinion, and they got so sick and tired of him, they stretched him out and they sawed him in half with a wooden saw. Don't think I want to tell you any more than that. Jeremiah was, according to tradition, finally stoned to death at the end of his weeping ministry. Amos had to flee for his life along with many of the other prophets. And Zechariah was stoned, walking into the temple area. On and on it goes. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25, the Old Testament says, Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, God, I have sent, I, God, have sent you all my servants, the prophets, and yet you did not listen to me or incline your ear, but stiffened your neck, and you did evil more than your fathers. So there's the whole story. 
In fact, when Jesus came to Israel in his own time, we've already seen it back in Luke chapter 13, he looked at Jerusalem and he looked at the leaders and in Luke 13, 34, he wept and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. I think I've proven the point. So Jesus in this parable is covering all of Old Testament time and he's bringing it right up to the moment of their time. And this is where the story begins to turn, and it goes to the astonishing. Because here, at a certain point, the people listening to the story would have, would have thought in their minds, if I'm the owner of this vineyard, and I'm dealing with this group of wicked tenant farmers, what am I going to do at this point? I'm going to call in the police. I'm going to get all these clowns arrested and I'm going to find some new vineyard owners and some new vineyard keepers. Justice is due. And yet at that very point, Jesus stuns his listeners with verse 13. Then, after all this abuse, all this rejection, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. I'm sure people standing there thought, what? Wow. I didn't see that one coming. He's going to send yet another one, and he's going to send his own son to these miscreants, these wicked men? Yep. And that's where you see the mercy in the parable. Remember I told you this is a parable about mercy and consequence? Here's mercy. Prophet after prophet, still coming with a message to come back to God and follow his word, suffering all the way. And then finally now, history turns from the Old Testament time to the moment right in front of them where Jesus said, and God decided to send his beloved son, me. And so we see the fourth teaching of the parable. And that is that Israel would ultimately even reject God's son. So the parable has shifted from the very past to the very present. Now what happens? He says, I'll send my son. But verse 14, but when the tenants, the, the, the spiritual leaders, remember that's who they are, past and present. Now the, the tenants are, are the Pharisees and the scribes standing right in front of him. When the, when the tenants saw him, saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Jesus was pointing to them without pointing and said, listen, you guys have always viewed, always viewed your spiritual leadership as an opportunity for you to have power over Israel and power over people. And you have never been faithful to God the Father. You've used your position just to dominate people. And you think you own Israel. And you think you own all spiritual truth. And now I come as the greatest threat you've ever tasted in your life. And you've started a plot to kill me. It started months ago. And don't lie to me. You want to kill me right now. Because you think Israel belongs to you. This is a religious operation you're, you're working and you're profiting from. And you want the inheritance. He ripped them from one side to the other. And they all knew it. The leaders did. So the Pharisees were these wicked tenants. Jesus is the beloved son. And the killing, of course, is referring to 
Now, Jesus is standing there in the temple courtyard in the middle of the final week of his life. What's the killing referring to? The cross three days later. The majesty of my Lord. Incredible. He puts himself into the story. He tells them exactly what they're going to do. He knows their hearts, knows their plan because he's sovereign God. He knows the plan of the Father. He knows all this has to happen. And in three days, he has to die on a cross and he has to die on Passover and he'll give up his spirit at three in the afternoon at the very time that the Passover lambs will be sacrificed in that very temple because he is the ultimate Passover lamb. As many commentators have looked at this and pointed out, this is all prophetic and it's powerful. Now, God wanted it to happen, but woe to these people who made it happen. Oh, the killing was the coming cross. And here's the mercy of God. In, in, in some marvelous way, God Almighty is telling them the wickedness of their hearts and the brokenness of their plans. And he's saying, even now, you can turn from this wicked way. That's the mercy of God. I know what you're about to do. I know what you're about to do. It was really their last chance. As I said, yes, last Sunday, this last week was the ending of the end for how Jesus had opened grace and mercy to all these corrupt religious leaders, but they were well on their way. There was no repentance coming, but the mercy of God. I don't know. Under, you can't imagine a scenario in which your wickedness can outreach the mercy of God. Come to Christ. The mercy was there. Oh, but it wouldn't last. They stood unlistening to him. And in fact, look at verse 19. What, did, what was their response when Jesus finished the parable? Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Hardened. Hardened. And sadly, three days later, they'd take most of the people with them. Well, two more pieces of teaching and then we'll wrap it up. This parable goes on. Here's the fifth thing it teaches. Israel would experience a righteous consequence for it all. Now we go from mercy and the parable finishes with consequences. His listeners are shocked. They heard this, they said in verse 17 or verse 16, surely not. And then Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Now Jesus goes from mercy to consequence. And he says, if you reject me long enough, I will one day reject you. Because I am the beloved son. And God wants the fruit of repentance in your life. And when all of his mercy has been exhausted on your stubborn back, there will come a day when mercy is over and judgment comes. He was looking right at them. And he said, this is going to happen first with Israel. He said, God is going to come and destroy those tenants. 
Now remember, the tenest of the religious leaders, the vineyard is Israel, and so this was going to happen to Israel, and it happened in two ways. We know that history tells us that 40 short years later, God did destroy the functioning nation of Israel. And, and back in chapter 19 and verse 42, Jesus predicted it. It says, when he drew near the, a couple days before to Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. This is Luke 19, 41, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus predicted that the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem would be thoroughly destroyed. It happened 40 years later in AD 70 when the Roman legions came and besieged Israel because Israel had rebelled once again against Rome and tens and hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered in Israel, slaughtered in Jerusalem. The city and the temple were destroyed. Not one stone was left upon another. And that's true archaeologically even today. And from that moment, the 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 functional spiritual nation of Israel ended in the sense that the priesthood ended and there's no more temple, no more sacrifices, no more spiritual leaders. They, they, they met a physical end. Secondly, not only did the, the entity end in, in that sense of their religious connection with God and, and yet also they, they, they lost the honor of bearing the truth to the world. Remember, God said, I want you to be a light to the nations. And Matthew tells us that, Matthew 21, that the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a people, bringing forth the fruit of it. What happened? They lost the privilege of taking the truth of God. And that privilege has now been given to what we know as the church today. That's a temporary thing. God has not permanently displaced Israel. He's not permanently done that to her. Romans tells us that they are under what's called a partial hardening. This is a time when the nation of Israel and the the people of Israel have come under judgment and discipline by God, but that hardening is only for a time. Paul said in Romans 9 and 11, it's until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And in a time yet future, God is going to draw Israel back to himself. He's not done with her because he's a covenant-keeping God, and he's a God who keeps his promises to his beloved people. That's why in the book of Revelation, you're going to see Israel begin to be restored, not just as a, as a political nation today. I, I believe it's being politically restored today, but spiritually to be restored in the times yet to come. In the great tribulation, there's going to be a mighty revival there. And 144,000 Jews are going to travel the world as spirit-powered evangelists. That whole nation is going to taste once again the spirit of God. And at the very end, when they see him and they have pierced at the visible return of Christ, they're going to be rescued by God. And all the Jews alive at that time, at the end of the tribulation period, are going to see him. And the entire nation is going to bear fruit of repentance. And they're going to turn to him. And he's going to lead them into what we call the millennium, where he sets up his throne from Jerusalem for a thousand years, does the Lord Jesus. And he will rule from Jerusalem. And the Jews will experience all the fulfillment of all the promises that they they disinherited themselves from the promises to Abraham and David and the prophets, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic, and so on. It's all going to be fulfilled. Yeah. 
Because God is a promise-keeping God. But in that hour, they slipped into temporary judgment. It just reminds me that there is a righteous consequence for all these things. And here's the last. Lastly, their story tells us about the ultimate decision facing everyone. Jesus said, I am a great stone. That's, that's a symbol of the authority and the power and the unmoving righteousness of God. And Jesus said, if you don't trust me and turn from your sin and acknowledge me as Savior, you will stumble over me. Jesus said, I can be a stumbling stone or a building block. You choose. And if you stay in your sin, you'll fall on me. And what happens when you fall with a good level of speed on a big rock? Who suffers? You or the rock? You can't beat the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't defy the Lord Jesus Christ. He is who He is. His authority is what it is. And you need to come in repentance, not in defiance. Because one day, you'll, you'll bring your defiance and you'll be crushed by Him. It's interesting. He says, you'll either fall on me and be broken to pieces, or when I come, I will crush you. That's out of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 that says when Jesus comes at the very end of time, all the nations will be gathered around Israel to oppose Him and He will destroy them with a word. He'll crush them, Daniel said, like a giant rock running into just the earth itself. So that is all there to say that Jesus Christ is bearing mercy now, but he will bear judgment someday. Jesus, the stone predicted by the prophets to be a precious cornerstone, he talks out here. Cornerstone of what? Of the future people of God. Peter talked about us as a temple of living stones, and the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. What's he doing now? He's temporarily set aside Israel, but he's building something else called the church in this age. And by the way, both Jews and Greeks are a part of that, Jews and Gentiles. He is the cornerstone of it all. He can be your cornerstone or he can be your stumbling block. It's your choice. And there's the consequence. Mercy. But there will be consequence. How you respond to the mercy of God determines all of that. And so there it is. I admit, it is a sobering story, isn't it? You just can't come to the Bible and make it mean what you want it to mean. Jesus Christ, <laughs> Jesus Christ was a rock of a preacher. And here he talks about God's marvelous mercy over your sin. God's long-suffering over your resistance. And God's constantly bringing people into your life to lead you to the truth. But God's promise that one day his patience will end and all men and women will face the rock of righteousness. That's the story. Well, what can you learn from that? Here's the last and just a moment where we want to try and relate the parable to our lives. So relating the parable to our lives, how do we look at these three things as I close? Number one, if you're a Christian, God expects spiritual fruit from you. Okay, He talks about what he did with Israel. Now you are part of God's church, and he wants spiritual fruit from your life 
wish I had time, but Second Peter, it talks about the, the marvels of, of what he wants. And, and Second Peter, it talks about wanting God wanting to. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, his mercies. He's drawn you into the knowledge of him. This is Second Peter 1, 3. And for that reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge. He goes through all of that. And he says, if these things, verse 6, verse 8 of 2 Peter 1, are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does God want you to be fruitful in your Christian life? Yes or no? Yes. Has he given you everything you need? Yes, his divine power is granted to you all the things that you need to be like his son and to grow. It's now up to you. He wants spiritual fruit from your life. So think of all the privileges you've had, all the people that God led into your life to lead you to Jesus, all the teachers and pastors and others that he's led into your life to help you grow as a Christian, all the knowledge you have, all the opportunities, all the blessings. How have you handled his mercies in your life, Christian? Are you bearing fruit for him? Secondly, I relate this to our life by understanding that God will patiently send you truth and truth bearers to turn your heart toward him. He did that before you were saved. Now, if you're not a believer today, guess what's happening right now and you're listening to me? You're getting truth from a truth bearer. Just like they got truth from truth bearers, and it's up to you what you do with it. Will you turn to Christ today? If you're a believer, you're getting more truth <laughs> from a truth bearer. What will you do with how God's Holy Spirit has spoken with you in the last hour and given you a prompting? Will you ignore the prompting? An insight? Will you forget the insight? A conviction? Will you, stop, will you tamp down that conviction? What are you going to do with the truth that God has poured into your life even today? And lastly, Jesus is going to return someday to reward believers for their fruitfulness. Great news. So walk with him and bear fruit or to repay unbelievers for their rejection of him. That's what Jesus said at the very end. So the time to deal with this is now. You say, what do I do? Well, the chances are you already know everything you need to know because God's mercies have probably seen to that. That's another point of the parable. God will always give you everything you need to know to obey him. So unbeliever turn to Christ in this moment. You really don't need to know anymore. And believer, live for Christ. Follow the prompting. Respond to God's movement in your heart. 